Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. This morning, we are continuing in a series called Christmas in the City, and we actually have uh, someone who... I, I love this guy quite a bit. Um, we have Fred Baker with us this morning, and the Christmas in the City idea was Fred's idea, and what is taking place during, what, what was that? God's idea. It came down on like these tablets and stuff, and Fred was like, that's cool. Um, yeah, kind of like that. Um, but Fred is going to be bringing a message for us this morning, our pastor James uh, preached at Fellowship Asheville early. It's like nine o'clock. You guys meet. Oof. They're they're better Christians than we are. Meeting at nine o'clock, but but James was over there today. Let me tell you something real quick about Fred. I've known Fred for about ten or eleven years. When I used to be a church planter way back in the day, uh, Fellowship was already meeting, and we were looking to see how people were doing church. And so we visited other churches, and they were meeting at the YMCA downtown, and they were like come, we'll show you everything. What do you need? How can we help? And so they were really open uh, at that point. And then when I got a brain injury and our church plant didn't make it, um, I I went and visited with Fred. And Fred was like, man, we want to love you guys and allow you guys to like physically heal. And you can do what you want. You can sit there and be potatoes. Or if the Lord heals you and you want to serve, you can serve or whatever. And we ended up joining Fellowship Asheville. And then when Reach Life um, was planted, Fellowship sent Kelly and I out to help plant this church. And so Fred is the guy um, who, man, I, Fred, I thank God for you. I really do. And so if, if you'll come bring the word of God for us this morning. Thanks. Fred Baker. Well, thanks, Terry. I uh, thank the world of you too. And uh, what's fun about that story too is, when Reach Life was just getting started, uh, they were doing the same thing. They were touring around churches and, and wanted to see how, how church worked. And so they came to visit Fellowship Asheville. We were meeting at the downtown YMCA at that time. And um, uh, so we stood them up and, and introduced our congregation to that core team. And, and uh, if I remember correctly, but that was a long time ago, so put that asterisk on it. If I remember correctly, um, uh, we brought uh, the James and, and, and Jazz at that time up and prayed for them. But then, too, we said to our congregation, Fellowship Asheville, we're like, listen, if, if what they're doing excites you and you feel like God is calling you to do that, then go join them. Well, that's when Terry and Kelly came up and they're like, I think, I think God is asking us to be a part of it, which to me is so stinking cool uh, that God would do that, that, that God sees uh, this city and sees these churches oftentimes, because oftentimes like we see churches and we see the city and we see all these individual castles, right? And, and God sees it as a kingdom. As a matter of fact, this, this whole idea, uh, first of all, let me say this, Fellowship Asheville says hi, right? We, we, we love Reach Life uh, and we love, um, uh, we love uh, what y'all are doing, uh, what God is doing in and through y'all here um, in, in West Asheville. And so thank you for this opportunity. But let me tell you why we're doing this Christmas in the city. 
because it, a part of it was formed way back when Reach Life was just getting started and, and there were church plants here getting started and Fellowship Asheville was always asking the question, God, what do you want us to do and to help and to, to be with these churches? But, but here's why, somewhere along the line, I don't even know if this is true, but here's what I heard. I heard that if you have 10% of a population um, thinking the same way, that that 10% actually can induce change into the other 90%. And without that 10% all thinking the same and kind of heading the same direction, you can't really impact that other 90%. Well, if you just do the simple math, Asheville is a, is a city of about 100,000 people. Right? And so it, for the gospel to spread in that city, you would need 10,000 people uh, speaking the gospel, sharing the gospel on mission together. Well, I don't know about James. Well, I do know this about James. It's, it's true of me too. Neither of us want to be a church of 10,000 people. But, and this idea started way back then in, in, in working with church plants, instead of, instead of being a church of 10,000 people, what if God could raise up 20 churches of 500 people of different denominations, right, of, of, of different uh, mixtures of congregations, but yet all speaking the same language of the gospel, that we need the gospel today just like we did the, the day we said yes to Jesus. And, and what if those 20 churches were working together to help each other be healthy churches, right, to help uh, the pastors were friends with each other. Can you imagine a city of 20 churches where their pastors were friends with each other and not in competition with each other? Can you imagine, can you imagine if, if that 20 churches of 500 people were, were, were focused on addressing hopelessness in the city with the hope that can only be found in the gospel? Or what if those, those 20 churches dealt with poverty rightly because of the gospel in a city? What if those 20 churches, instead of being diverse, they, they, they talked about unity that can only be found in the gospel? What if those 20 churches worked together to address inequity with this gospel-fueled gospel, gospel, gospel fueled sense of justice? Like, let me tell you, that would change the other 90%. And so that's what this Christmas in the city is an attempt to do. It's to capture this, this unique way that God is building this network of churches, right? Um, and so, so when I say literally it was God's idea, it was God's idea. Years ago, it was God's idea. And we just get to be a part of it now. And I'll also tell you on a personal note, it has been really nice to plan one message for the entire month of December. <laughs> And preach it four times. That's an added benefit of this that, that I did. It was definitely on the pro list uh, when, when we thought about doing this. But this whole idea of Christmas in the city has been great fun. And so thank you all for being willing to participate in this. And I'm thankful to have James not only as a pastor, but also as a friend in this uh, as, we, as, we, as we hope and pray to see the gospel poured out into the city. Well, speaking of friends, I want to introduce you to somebody. Uh, this is a friend of mine. Uh, her name is Esperanza. Can everybody see Esperanza? Uh, what you can't see is that smile on her face. There is not a tooth in her head, right? But this smile on her face was always there every single time that I saw Esperanza. And I met Esperanza, uh, and uh, I was doing a mission trip in Nicaragua. 
And um, anytime Esperanza saw us coming, she would hop up out of her seat. Now, uh, Esperanza is a believer in Jesus, and she was very quick to tell us that Jesus is her hope, which is, by the way, what Esperanza means in Spanish is hope. And she would say that Jesus is her hope. And, and, and every time we saw Esperanza, uh, there was this joy that just came from her. Anytime we went by her home, uh, there was this joy here. Now, let me tell you, just to paint a context of this, why this is important. Let me tell you what her home looked like, because Esperanza's home was in a junkyard in Nicaragua, like literally in a junkyard. And her house her, her house was made from some cinder bricks that she had found, but it was also like, do you remember those, those kiddie pools? They're about that deep and they're real flimsy until you fill them up with water and then the, the water kind of holds the, the walls together and they usually have like, you know, this scene of fish and seaweed and stuff on the outside. Well, that was the outside of Esperanza's home. That was, that was the, 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 the planks on the outside of her home was that. The, the rubber matting from those pools is what her roof was made out of to keep the water out. And so that's what she lived in. And she existed on what the church brought her, which was oftentimes just, just beans and rice and cooking oil. And then she had a couple of grandkids uh, that would bring money to her that was just extra money for them if they could spare it. And so, so when I say uh, that her conditions were bleak, like that doesn't even begin to paint the picture of what she lived in. And yet, Every single time I saw her, what I felt in her presence was joy. This unexplainable joy. As a matter of fact, I would say, if you look at this picture, like she is the poster child for joy from what I know of her. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to keep her smile in your mind today right? Keep that toothless smile in your mind today as we go through this text, because, because today's text is going to capture a joy that as a pastor, here, here's what I'd love to do, because this is kind of the, the, what we pastors like to do. We like to say that this joy is completely available to you, right? But here's what we're going to see in this text, because I want you to keep that question in your mind, is joy available to me? But here's what we're going to see in this text, that for some of you, the answer will be yes, but for some of you, the answer will be no. And I'm telling you that because I love you, because I do want this kind of joy available to all of you. But there's something that has to be in you to have this joy that we're going to see today and this joy of Esperanza be true about you as well. And so we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open there. And as you're turning there, or, if you're, or, or you can turn your Bible on if it's on your phone, whatever the case may be, right? And as you're turning there, let me, let me explain a little bit about what's happening. Um, I know typically when you do an Advent series, you kind of follow the order of the Scriptures, but 2020 is all out of order, so, so are we. So I know you've, you've already heard about the shepherds, you've, uh, you, but now we're going back a little bit to, to Mary. And in this song that we see, because if you look in your Bible, you'll notice that depending on how your Bible is formatted, these verses are formatted differently because Luke records this as a song. He records it as poetry. And in this, we're going to see joy right? This joy like Esperanza has, this joy that, that I really hope we all have, right? Now, let me give you just a little bit of background to what we're going to see today, because the book of Luke, uh, Luke opens with this angel Gabriel coming. 
right? And, and he comes and he visits this guy named Zechariah to tell him that his wife Elizabeth is going to have a son. But this angel also tells him a little bit about this son, that, that their son is going to be the one who proclaims that the Messiah is coming. Now, we know him as John the Baptist. You want a cheesy pastor joke? Here's this one. What did John the Baptist and Winnie the Pooh have in common? Their middle names. All right. You'll get it later, right? <laughs> See, it's a, it like you have dad jokes, and then a level below that is you've got pastor jokes, and that's that. All right, well, well, Luke captures that that same angel Gabriel goes to visit Mary. You got it? All right, yeah. <laughs> it's great, it's great. Like I said, it, it, it'll hit you later. Um, uh, that, that same angel Gabriel, Mary records, goes to visit this woman named Mary, who is, who is related uh, to Elizabeth. And he tells Mary that she is going to have a son, but her son uh, isn't going to be, um, her, the, her son's father isn't going to be Joseph, the guy that she's betrothed to, that God is going to be the son's father, and tells Mary that her son is going to be the Messiah. Now, y'all, this is a big deal for the angel to declare this, because the nation of Israel has been waiting for this Messiah since the beginning of time, right? Because in Genesis 3.15, God begins this whisper of one who will will crush the serpent's head, who will crush the sin's head, but that, that, that Satan will bruise his heel. And so that started this whisper of a coming Messiah. And as you go through the Old Testament, that whisper is sometimes shouted and we know that he's coming. And so the nation of Israel has been waiting for thousands of years. And so for the angels to show up and say, hey, uh, Elizabeth is going to have the one to proclaim the way that the Messiah and Mary is going to have the Messiah. Like y'all, this is a big deal that the Savior is coming. And so what Mary does when she receives this information is she goes to Elizabeth's house. And when, when, when Mary walks into Elizabeth's house, John the Baptist, still in Elizabeth's womb, jumps for joy because the Savior has come in. And, and this is what I love about Luke. The, the book of Luke is so clear on how important women are to the ministry of Jesus. Because the very first proclamation of the gospel in the book of Luke is from a woman. Because Elizabeth looks at Mary and she says this. She says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And in this, Elizabeth is saying, not only do I know, I have the the one who is going to proclaim the way of the Savior. Mary, my Savior is in your belly right now. And she said, why would he come to see me? And it's the first proclamation of the gospel. Well, This song by Mary that we see here is her response to Elizabeth's comment. And so let's let's look, because in here we're going to see this response of joy, and we're going to find the answer to our question, is joy available to me? Look at verse 46. It says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. Now, now imagine this word magnifies means exactly what you think it does. It means to make something bigger. Imagine if you've had a magnifying glass in your hand. Anybody ever held a magnifying glass before? If you were a child, you probably uh, caught ants on fire with it, right? Like that's mostly what kids do with magnifying glasses was we catch things on fire. But adults typically, uh, look at magnifying glasses, uh, look through a magnifying glass so they can make something bigger, right? To be able to focus on it, to be able to know it better. These glasses that I'm wearing are kind of like magnifying glasses. I knew I needed them. 
when in front of church, I read the wrong verse. I read Romans, I think it was 525 instead of 528 or something. Like I thought I was looking at a five and instead I was looking at an eight, got halfway through the verse and realized I'm reading the wrong verse. I needed something to magnify, something to help me focus on. Well, that's what Mary says. Mary says she has focused on the Lord to make him bigger so that she can know him better so that she can focus on him. That's what the word magnifies mean. Now, let me tell you about Mary. We know she was probably, she was young. She was about 16 at the time. And, and she knew God's word. And she knew her God through God's word because these few verses that we're gonna see today, these few verses, listen to what she either directly quotes from or alludes to. Genesis, Deuteronomy, 1st and 2nd Samuel, Job, Psalms, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. Now, I'm not going to ask you, but have, if I said, raise your hand if you haven't even read one of those books, we could probably all raise our hands, right? And she knew God's word so well, she could pull from it like this to express what she was feeling. She had made God bigger so that she could know him better. She had focused on God's word and she calls that magnified. Now, look at what this produces in her. So so she's saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. I make him bigger so that I can know him better. And look at what this does. In verse 47, for my spirit rejoices and God, my Savior. And so what her magnifying did, what her focusing in on God, what what her making God bigger so that she could know him better did is that it produced this joy in her soul. Now, this word joy, this joy that Esperanza has, this joy that's described right here, here's what it means. This joy means to spring up, right? It means to, it means to leap. It means to be excited, so excited that you can't be still. It's the joy that we saw in Esperanza every time we saw her. Literally, she would be sitting in a chair and her feeble body, when she saw us, she would jump up and come, come as fast as she could to us. That's the joy that Mary says is produced in her by making God bigger so that she could know him better. That's the joy. Now, listen, I, I've been a Christian for I don't even know how long. I mean, I could do the math, but it's been a, it's been a, it's been a minute. Let's just say that. Right? In, 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 in the Christian world, particularly in the evangelical white Christian world, we love to say that joy is Jesus in you with what in between? Nothing, right? That's what joy means. Jesus, you with nothing in between. We love to say that joy is uh, not dependent on your circumstances, right? Anybody heard that? That it is the, it is the peace Uh, in the storm, it is the calm and the chaos. And y'all, you need to hear me. Those are all very biblical and very true definitions of joy. But here's what we tend to miss in the white evangelical church. And I can say this uh, because I have preached in front of different congregations, in front of different, uh, in in different countries, and I've experienced what is happening in the world, uh, around the world in the body of Christ. And let me tell you, This type of joy that is uncontainable and indescribable is also a biblical joy, right? Now, here's what happens when I say this in in, in white churches, and I love it. We get this thing called the evangelical grunt. You know what I'm talking about? That's like when the pastor says something, and what do you do? You go, "Mm, mm-mm. Now, if I was in Africa preaching, 
which I had before, what happens, that evangelical grunt turns into song and dancing and flags waving and tambourines, whatever the verb there is for tambourine, tambourining, <laughs> right? That joy is just as biblical of a joy as calm and the chaos and peace in the storm. That joy is the joy that Mary says she has when she makes God bigger so that she can know him better. Now, as we have this, this time of Christmas and as we have this Advent season, as I describe that, this uncontainable, indescribable joy that makes you kind of leap up out of your seat, this joy, man, how many of us are just like me and being like, man, I wish I had some of that. Especially today, I wish I had some of that. I'll tell you, I stayed up too late last night watching House Hunters International. <laughs> love it. Love it. I don't even know how many episodes we have recorded. There's no way I'll get through them all, but I stayed up too late last night watching that. Slept in a little bit this morning. Didn't have enough coffee, right? I could use that kind of joy this morning. I could use that kind of joy in this Christmas season as, as even during a worldwide pandemic, this season seems shockingly busy, doesn't it? Anybody else need this kind of joy in your life, this uncontainable, indescribable joy? If so, we're going to see how. Because what we see here is that Mary focused on God, right? She made God bigger so that she could know him better. And y'all, I'm, I'm with you on this. Focusing on God is hard, isn't it? When I was uh, doing my graduate work in seminary, we were given the assignment. Y'all, this was our homework for this one class, was to pray for five solid minutes. That was our homework. And then to work up to praying for a solid 30 minutes. My thinking in complete pride was that, oh, this will be easy. We're in seminary, right? Praying for a solid five minutes, no problem. Y'all, I, I sat down to pray. I went through everything I knew to pray for and had three minutes left. And then my mind immediately started wandering to all kinds of other things. Y'all, focusing on God is hard. Kids, kids, when I say prayer, like this isn't just an adult thing, right? Kids can pray just as well as, as adults can. And so when I first started and, 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 and praying for five minutes was hard, trust me, I get it. It, it. Focusing on God can be hard. But here's what I want you to see. I want you to see what happens when Mary focuses on God. Because here we're going to see the answer to our question, is joy available to me? Look at verse 48. Verse 48 says this, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, and for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant is what Mary says. And so in this verse right here, we can see why Mary has the joy he has. And I think it's the same reason Esperanza had the joy uh, that she had. And I think it's the only way that you and I are going to have this kind of uncontainable, indescribable joy. Because Mary says this, she says, God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now, this is going to get a little wordsmithy here, so, so, so bear with me a little bit, all right? 
when Mary says that, when she says, God has looked. So, so in other words, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. I focused on God to know him, to make him bigger so that I could know him better. And guess what I discovered? I discovered that he has looked at me. I discovered when I put my attention on him, his attention was already on me because the words that she uses here is past tense. She says, when I focused on God, when I made him bigger so that I could know him better, what I discovered is that his attention was on me before my attention was ever on him. And what this produced in her was joy. When, when she says that God looked at her and she saw that he had been looking at, at when God looked, when she looked at him, she had seen that he had been looking at her long before she focused on God. And she can see this, uh, that God has been looking at her. Now, here's the deal. We think, we think that we have to be good enough to get God's attention, don't we? We think we have to do enough of the right stuff to get him to look at us or not do enough of the wrong stuff to get his attention on, at us, to get his attention on us. Here's what Mary is saying. Mary is saying, no, 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 no. When I looked at him, I saw that he had always been looking at me. He had been looking at me since before I ever looked at him. And what this did is it produced in her humility, right? Because she says he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. And so what we see is when we focus on God and we see that his focus is on us, it produces humility. Now, Tim Keller says this about humility, that humility isn't thinking less of ourselves, right? Because we can actually have this kind of warped sense of pride that says, if I, if I degrade myself enough, that's humility. If, if, I'm, if I'm unworthy enough, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm detestable enough, I'm nobody and I'm insignificant, that that's humility. Here's the problem with that. In all of those statements, who's still the subject of that sentence, those sentences? I, right? I am this, I am this, I am this. That's why it's just this warped sense of pride. That's why Tim Keller says, no, no, no. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of ourselves less. That's what Tim Keller says humility is. And I agree with it. And I think, I think this text points to that too. Because you see, when Mary focused on God, she let God focus on her. And so here's the point. Mary didn't actually focus on herself at all. She focused on God and let his attention be on her. And when this happened, it produced humility. And that humility allowed her to receive this gift called joy. Now, for us to receive this kind of joy, we also need this kind of humility. Now, don't you wish I could just look at you and say, go be humble, right? And that we could be done for the day. Go be humble. Unfortunately, that doesn't work, right? Humility isn't something that we can be. Because here's what, here's what I think humility is. Humility, this thinking of yourself less, is a reaction to being the focus of someone greater than you. Now, this can go one of two ways, right? This, this being the focus of someone greater can, can produce humility or it can produce insecurity. Because here's what insecurity is. Insecurity is when you're the focus of someone greater who actually makes you focus on yourself, right? Have any of you met a celebrity before, like the celebrity in your life? Have you ever met someone that you just can't believe you get to meet? One time I was, I was downtown and I got to meet Jude Law, right? We were at the Mediterranean rest diner of all places. 
this guy walks in, I think, that's Jude Law. But he looks old. Like, I've only seen him in movies and films, and he looks really tall. I didn't know Jude Law was tall, but he is. So I quickly grabbed my phone, and I Googled, like, a recent picture of Jude Law. And lo and behold, he is growing old. And, 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 and I casually walk over to the side of the diner where they are to get a napkin, because I was like, okay, if this guy's speaking with a British accent, it's totally Jude Law. So I walk over, get a napkin, I hear him talking to a guy, and, and sure enough, it's Jude Law. And so he finishes up eating, of course, I'm at a table of other people. I'm like, yo, Jude Law's right over there. Let's finish eating so we can go check out at the same time and meet him. So I get to meet him right outside. He's very nice, by the way, has a lovely British accent, and he is incredibly tall. If you've ever met a celebrity, here's what can happen. Is all of a sudden you look at yourself and you're like, oh, they're, they're dressed really nice. Like, I've had this sweater for four years. Right? Like all of a sudden you notice your shoes are scuffed. You notice if, if, or, if, or maybe if you're around someone that's wealthy or strikingly beautiful, right? All of a sudden you start looking at yourself and you realize and you see all your own flaws that your clothes are out of date. Like I said, your shoes are scuffed. Maybe you put on a few pounds. Or kids, have you ever been assigned an assignment? And adults, maybe you remember this too. Have you ever been partnered up with the smartest kid in the class? I had to do a science project with a girl who became our valedictorian, right? When that happens, you just feel stupid, <laughs> right? Um, uh, because when you're in the presence of someone greater, insecurity happens when you focus on yourself. What Mary is showing us is that when you're someone greater that you're in the presence of is God, and you let him focus on you, you're not focusing on yourself, you're focusing on him. And when that happens, that produces humility. Why? Because when we see God for how big he is, when we make him big so that we can know him better, here's what happens. Everything else gets very small. And those things in our life that we think are really big actually become very small. And when that does, there is contentment joy there and there's, there's humility there. And two, when we make God big so that we can know him better, here's, here's where this humility springs from too. We get to see how God sees us. And I'm gonna tell you, oftentimes that's a whole lot better than we see ourselves. Because when he sees us, he sees his son, Jesus. One of the things we say at our church is that, is that God doesn't only love you, he likes you. And why wouldn't he? Because if when he sees you, he sees his son, I'm pretty sure he likes Jesus. And so why wouldn't he like you? You see, when we make God big so that we can know him better, we actually get to see the way God sees us. And it is love and it is mercy and it is patience and it is good and it is kind and it is just, but it doesn't feel like the justice we know, right? It is this justice that is good and that is right and that is holy. And that's the God that Mary is focused on. That's the God that Mary has made bigger so that she could know him better. Well, now Mary is going to describe this God. And y'all, there's, there's this little key in here that's so helpful for us. Look at verse 49. 
It says, for he who is mighty has done great things. And so this God that she's going to describe, this God is a powerful God. And in him, all things are possible. But look at how she describes this God. She says, for he who is mighty has done great things. And what are the next two words? For me. So this God who is mighty has done great things for me. Now notice there's no self-condemnation here. There's no, there, there's, there's, there's no, I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy. It's just this simple fact that her God is a mighty God and that he has been mighty for her in her life. Why? Because his attention is on her and has been on her this whole time. And so look at what else. In verse, the rest of verse 49 says this. It says, and holy is his name. Now, what I love about this is, is Mary uh, in, has, has, has pulled together these two ideas that this God is holy, right? That he is pure, that he is clean, and yet he is intensely personal, right? Because we like to take this holy God and put him distant, don't we? But Mary says, no, 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 this holy God is holy and mighty for me. He is incredibly personal. And he's not separated from Mary. He's not distant from Mary. And so how does a God who is that holy and that, that pure and that clean, how is, he, how is he that personal with humans who aren't? Well, we know how because we know how this story ends, don't we? We know it's by faith and it's actually been by faith all along. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, it has been by faith. And we know that this child that's in Mary's womb will be the bridge between this holy God and, and humanity, right? That this child will one day grow up to be the man who says that he is the long-awaited promised Messiah, that this man will be the one to grow up to fulfill every prophecy about him that's been proclaimed. And many, we know that this man, that many will believe in him, but not all will. And we know that some will condemn him to death and that he will be crucified and he will die the death of a sinner, although he lived the life of a saint, that he lived a holy life. And yet he will die the death of a sinner through crucifixion. And this child, we also know, will be raised from the dead three days later in resurrection. Why? So that those who have faith in him, although we live lives of sinners, we can get the reward. We can be made clean as saints. That's why. Because this child that's in Mary's womb is the reason a holy God isn't separated from his creation that isn't holy. Because he is the bridge. And this child in Mary's womb is the same bridge for us that we can have this good and right and personal relationship with the God who loves us, the God who likes us, the God who made us. That's how this holy God can still be intimately personal. And so maybe for you, Christmas has become a whole lot about traditions, right? And listen, I love Christmas traditions. We have got this Christmas tree in, in, uh, where we live in our home that is all the ornaments of each year. We get an ornament that kind of captures the, the, what the year is going to be. Uh, this week, I actually put an empty roll of toilet paper on that tree because that's what 2020 is, right? Like that's the one to capture 2020. But I love those traditions. But let me tell you, y'all, traditions can't turn turn sinners into saints. 
Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can, can, can connect, uh, you know, a holy God in a personal relationship to those who aren't holy. Now, for you, and those of you who are listening and watching, maybe today is the day that you say yes to Jesus' offer of salvation. That you realize that, that your faith isn't about tradition. Your faith is about a person, and that person's name is Jesus. And so for you, maybe you can put your life in his hands and say yes to his offer of salvation today. Because look at this. This God that she's made bigger so that she can know better, um, he isn't just personal, he is also powerful. And now she goes on to describe what she means by mighty. Because look at this, in verse 50, in verse 50, it says this. It says, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And so, so the God that she's made bigger so that she can know him better, that his mercy, she says, extends over the breadth of time. That's what from generation to generation means, that this God that she has made bigger so that she can know him better, that this God doesn't give up on her and doesn't give up on his people. This God is a patient God. Now, here's what that means. That means this God when I wasn't able to pray for five minutes or when I am able to pray for more than five minutes or when I don't pray at all, this patient God still loves me. His attention is still there, whether my attention is on him or not, that he is a patient God. Look at verse 51. It says, and he has shown strength with his arm and he has scattered the proud in, their, in, their, in the thoughts of their hearts. And so this God is strong. And how does he show his strength? Does he show it in thunder? Does he show it uh, in tornadoes of wrath? No, look at what he does. Look at what he does to show his strength in verse 52. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Now, Esperanza lived this first because she was one of the hungry that she believed God had filled her with good things. In her home made out of kiddie pools that nobody wanted, she still believed God had given her good things. You see, this God shows his power, not in thunders or tornadoes, but he shows his power by changing the hearts of people because that is power. Right? He takes the proud and powerful and brings them low and takes the low and hungry and lifts them up and fills them. And his strength is seen in changing the hearts and uh, moving those who, so who seem absolutely immovable. Now, here's the deal. If you've if you've studied Greek or Roman mythology, like, like the, the idea of, of causing a storm to rage would be similar to you. Right? Because stories of Greek and Roman gods can do that. If you're not a Greek and Roman god person, how about, how about uh, DC Comics, right? Superheroes can cause a storm out of nothing, right? But our God is more powerful than that because Greek and Roman gods and superheroes can't change hearts. Only our God can do that. That is power. That is true power. Well, look at what else Mary's God can do. In verse 54, it says this, And he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And so what, what she's saying here is that this God keeps his promises. This God is a faithful God. If he has said it's going to happen, it is going to happen, and you can bank on it. 
And this baby that she's carrying in her womb, this baby is the ultimate promise kept. Because like I said, this baby was mentioned at the beginning of, of the Bible in Genesis 3.15. And, and, and his name has been whispered and his name has been shouted ever since then. And for her, she knows that, that this baby in her womb is the baby that every story in Scripture points to. And for her, if, if, if this God can fulfill this promise, there is no promise left that he can't fulfill. He is a faithful God. And so this God that Mary magnifies, he fulfills his promises that were just spoken as whispers long ago to her. This God can change the hearts of men and women in a heartbeat, right? This God extends mercy. And here's the part that, that gets to me. He never gets tired of being patient. Parents. Like, do I need to say this? Do you get tired of being patient? You just want to go to the bathroom by yourself, right? And you got these fingers coming under the door, right? Like our God never gets tired of showing mercy. Her God is holy and yet intensely personal and involved with the messiness of his creation. And her God has done all these great things for her, right? Her God knows her, just like your God, just like Jesus knows you. You see, her God has his eyes on her and always has. Her God loves her. This is Mary's God. And Mary's response to that God is humility. And because of this humility, she has this joy that is uncontainable and indescribable. And that joy goes beyond any circumstances. It goes beyond everything in her life. You see, Esperanza magnified that same God. She took that same God and made him bigger so that she could know him better. And when it did, it gave her humility and it gave her hope. And when me and, and my team, when we, it, when we were in her, we experienced that humility and hope as nothing but joy. That's what we saw when we saw Esperanza. And so you see, the question that we asked at the beginning, is that joy available to you? Well, here in these texts, we see that joy is given to the humble. That's, that's who this kind of joy is available to, is to the humble. And the humble are those who focus on God and discover that His loving focus has been on them the entire time. And so is this kind of joy available to you? Well, let me tell you, true humility starts with accepting Jesus' uh, offer and work of salvation for you. And so maybe, maybe that's the step for you to take today because the day today can be the day that you say yes to him. But for many of us here, and for many of, of those watching and listening, you've already said yes to Jesus, haven't you? You've already accepted his offer of salvation. And so for those of us who have said yes to Jesus, today, Perhaps we still need this truth in this busy season of our lives, that, that we have this deep and personal relationship with the God of the universe who delights in us, who delights in you, and, and, and who delights being the focus of your life, that he delights when your focus is on him so that he can show you how much he loves to focus on you. 
And so what if we did this? What if we took what Mary did here and we kind of extrapolated it into our lives? And, 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 you know, that assignment that I got in seminary to pray for five minutes, I'm going to alter that because here's what I discovered too. When you're told to pray for five minutes, what are you focused on? The clock. You're focused on the five minutes, which is like torture. So what if we did this? Let's take the time limit off, right? And what if this week we realized and, and, and focused on Jesus, right? We focused on our God and we made him bigger so that we can know him better. And then we do what Mary did. And we add that little phrase, for me. Because y'all, we're, we're used to praying, God, you're holy. God, you're good. God, you're love. But what if we added that for me component? So, so don't focus on time. Don't even, don't even like worry about sitting down. Like go for a walk, go for a hike, get outside. Do what you need to do to be able to, to make God bigger so that you can know him better. And, and, and focus on what you see when you do that. What, what, what do you see in Jesus? You'll see his holiness. You'll see his goodness. You'll see his justice. You'll see his mercy. And then I want you to say, gosh, all of that for me. All of that for me. And kids, you can do this too. What if you took some time to pause to say, God, you are fill in the blank for me this week. And here's what I want you to do too. I want you to say it out loud, right? Like, God, you are holy for me. That's one of the things when I, when I started writing this message weeks ago, um, um, that's the one that jumped out to me because I realized, God, you have to be holy for me to be able to pull me out of my sin. Because if you were sinful like me, we would just be in this together. And I need you to be holy so that you can show me a better way to live. Right? That's what I'm talking about. What if you, what if you do that? What would happen if we spent a bit of time, not focused on time, but just focused on God? in prayer, declaring who he is for you. And here's what would happen. We would see God for how big he really is and other things would become small. We would know him better and we would become a humble people. And let me tell you what would happen when we become a humble people is that the people outside of this church would see a humble people with joy. That's what they would see. Now, imagine if you had 20 churches shoulder to shoulder humbly making God bigger so that we can know him better. And those 20 churches were seen by those outside the churches, 20 churches full of joy, uncontainable, indescribable joy. Let me ask you, do you think that would change the other 90%? Because I do. I do. Let me pray for us. God, you are holy, but I tell you today, you have been graceful for me. And, and you have lovingly met me in my tiredness. You have lovingly uh, met me uh, with grace. And so, Father, for that, I am thankful. And God, I pray, I, I pray for, for the saints here who are gathered together to worship your name. I pray this week that you would show them something specific about who you are and why you are that way for them. And Father, that that would, would, would give them more faith, that that would increase their humility and that those around them would see it as joy. And that all of that 
would be done to your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen.